Amen. I'd invite you this morning, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to the book of Ruth. You can find the book of Ruth back there. If you get to Joshua and Judges, you haven't gone far enough, and you get to First and Second Samuel, you went too far. But we get a couple of weeks um, during this fall season. We've been looking at the writings, uh, the Old Testament text from the lectionary. And for this Sunday and next Sunday, we get to spend just a couple of weeks in this little four-chapter book of Ruth. This morning, we're going to look together at the first chapter, and I'm going to invite you to remain seated this morning because I want to read the whole first chapter to you, and I don't want your feet to be crowding your thoughts while we hear, um, while we hear these words. Ruth chapter 1. During the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man with his wife and two sons went from Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the territory of Moab. The name of that man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the territory of Moab and settled there. But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Then only she was left, along with her two sons. They took wives for themselves, Moabite women. The name of the first was Orpah, and the name of the second was Ruth. And they lived there for about ten years. But both of the sons, Malin and Chilion, also died. Only the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. Then she arose along with her daughters-in-law to return from the field of Moab because while in the territory of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had paid attention to the people by providing food for them. She left the place where she had been and her two daughters-in-law went with her. They went along the road to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, Turn back, each of you, to the household of your mother. May the Lord deal faithfully with you, just as you have done with the dead and with me. May the Lord provide for you so that you may find security, each woman in the household of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lift up, lifted up their voices and wept. But they replied to her, No, instead we will return with you to your people. Naomi replied, turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Will there again be sons in my womb that they would be husbands for you? Turn back, my daughters. Go, I am too old for a husband. If I were to say that I have hope, even if I had a husband tonight, and even more, if I were to bear sons, would you wait until they grew up? That doesn't make sense at all. Would you refrain from having a husband? No, my daughters, this is more bitter for me than for you, since the Lord's will has come out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth stayed with her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Turn back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me, and more so, if even death separates me from you. 
When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. So both of them went along until they arrived at Bethlehem. And when they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was excited on account of them. And the women of the town said, can this be Naomi? She replied to them, don't call me Naomi, meaning pleasant, but call me Mara, meaning bitter. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has returned me empty. Why would you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has deemed me guilty? Thus Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned with her from the territory of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I were to recount the history of Israel up in this section, it would probably go something like this. That in many ways, the story begins with God's call upon Abraham and Sarah and Abraham and Sarah leave. And we have this spectacular thing happen. This old couple who cannot have a baby give birth to a baby, Isaac. You could carry the story, story forward and we could get to Joseph and, and Joseph who has this dream and this ability by God to interpret dreams. And Joseph goes through this whole kind of whining story of his own only to end up in Pharaoh's court interpreting dreams and saving a whole multitude of people during another famine. We jump to Exodus and we'd get the story of these 10 great cosmic plagues that deconstruct the world's primary superpower and invite then God's people to leave the bondage that they feel to that oppression and they are able to move and go through the Red Sea that parts in two. And, and once they get to the other side of the sea, they wind up in the wilderness where there's nothing, but all of a sudden bread comes from heaven and, and Moses strikes the rock and water flows from the rock. Mm. They're led by a, a pillar of cloud during the day, by a pillar of fire at night. Eventually, Joshua will take them over and he will lead them again through water, this time through the Jordan River, and it will part for them and they'll enter into the promised land. Only there are people there. And in the midst of those conflicts, crazy things will happen. Joshua will leave a, lead a seven-lap worship service around, the, around Jericho and the walls will collapse. It's It's unbelievable. And then they enter into the time of Judges. And even that time of Judges has these powerful moments with Deborah and Barak and crazy old Samson with all of his hair and muscles and, and Gideon and all the things that God does through him. Eventually then the period of Judges would leap and we will do this in a couple of weeks. We'll leap to 1 Samuel and we will hear another miracle. A barren woman, Hannah, gives birth to Samuel. And then we'll move forward and a shepherd boy with a sling slays a giant. These powerful kind of moments, these are the moments that, that narrate Israel's history for us, especially those early years. These are the stories that make the felt board in children's church. These are the stories that VeggieTales is working on. These are the stories that we remember and highlight through the scripture. But in the midst of that, here is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth has some similarities to some of the other writings. When Naomi rehearses everything that's happened to her, she sounds a bit like Job. She's lost everything. 
But the book of Ruth sits there in the scripture as a quiet book. There is no miracle that happens in the book of Ruth. There is no prophetic oracle that is spoken by anyone. And although unlike the book of Esther, as we saw, that doesn't mention God's name at all, at least God gets mentioned in Ruth. However, the mention of God is really a mention from far, far away. If, if we think of Ruth as a play, God is off in the wings somewhere doing something distant from the heart of the story that's being told. This morning, what I want us to think about is that it's easy for us, I think, to read the scripture narrated as we are drawn to them, narrated as though God's story is primarily told in these massive big events, moments of divine action, moments of God's creativity, moments of divine power entering into the circumstances. But this morning I would want to say to us that the book of Ruth sits here in the canon to remind us that God's grand narrative is primarily told in small stories of faith. I only got one amen from Brent and we pay him to do that. Let me say that again. Ruth is there, I think, to remind us that God's grand narrative is primarily told in the small stories of faith of everyday people. Thank you. So we get two weeks in um, this little four-chapter book, and there are a couple of theories about why the book of Ruth is written. Um, I'm going to say one for next week, but I'll tell you one of the major theories. One of the major theories about the book of Ruth is that it's written fairly early, actually, compared to some of the other literature that we've looked at. And that Ruth is written early, primarily as a way of defending David. So I don't want to ruin the kind of punchline of Ruth, but I have to. We get this wonderful story of Ruth, and then the, the kind of bomb is dropped in the very last, last verses of the book that tell us this. Ruth is David's great-grandmother. This is part of the power of the book. But many scholars think the book may have emerged then as a way to defend David. We, we often think, why would David need defending? Well, think about it for just a moment. When Saul was king and then Jonathan died and should have been king, this question of who should succeed Saul is a big question. And even though we get the story of David killing Goliath and his power against all these different Philistines, and he writes some really cool songs, you still have this question. I mean, should David be king? I mean, he's not even first in his own family. His family calls him the Hakaton, the runt of the litter. He comes from Bethlehem, which I know in a few weeks as we get to Advent and Christmas, we'll sing these lovely carols about sweet little Bethlehem. But the truth is, it's a nowhere place. In fact, most scholars assume that during the time of Ruth, Bethlehem probably had a population of about 200 people. And Bethlehem you know, makes Marsing look like a metropolis. Like it just is, is, is nothing. And so can this guy from a kind of nowhere town, really not even first in his family, and here's the big thing, I hear he has some Moabite blood in him. <laughs> I've heard as much as a 16th of his blood is Moabite. 
For part of this story has to do with the fact that the Moabites have a kind of seedy history and a broken relationship with Israel. The way Israel tells the story is, you want to know where the Moabites came from? They came from Lot's incest with his daughters. (laughs) And it hasn't gotten a whole lot better since. Violent, broken, kind of awful people. And David's lineage, at least in part, derives from the Moabites. And so the argument goes that Ruth then is written and placed in the canon as a way of saying, yeah, yeah, his great-grandmother was a Moabite, but her faith puts a lot of Israel's faith to shame. So he may have some Moabite blood in him, but he's got Ruth's faith in him, right? Powerful. If we go to the story, the story opens during a time of chaos. It, ty- it opens during the time of the book of Judges, which as powerful it is, as it is, is also a time of upheaval. It's a time when everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, when there is no king in Israel. It also t- opens in a time of scarcity and there is a famine in the land. And because of those two things, it's a time where people have to start making really hard decisions. And, and this is important for me that you get this this morning. So many people in the story have to make really difficult decisions that are in some ways compromises when it feels like they don't really have any choice. And this is the important point. The Bible doesn't really make any moral condemnation upon those choices. So Elimelech makes what had to be a desperate choice to leave Bethlehem and go to the land of Moab during a famine. A patriarch fearful that his family is going to starve to death, feeling like he is out of options other than to go to this place with the strange people, with strange customs, with the fear that he may not even survive there, but, but desperately makes that choice to go. And then when he dies there, his two sons, Malin and Chilean, marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And again, there's no real condemnation upon that choice. It just seems like that's the only alternative when now we are stuck in Moab and now we need our mother to be cared for and to have shelter and we need to have children that can be able to produce for us and be able to be a long-term source of security for our mother. But what happens? They die. And then Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem, which again is really not talked about as either a good or bad choice. It just seems like the only choice. Now she is alone, isolated in Moab with all sorts of potential threats. But even going back to Bethlehem and the question of whether she'll be welcomed there or whether she will even be killed on the journey, all of those are open questions. And this is the really important one. She says to her two daughter-in-laws, go home. I don't have much of a chance, but the only chance you have may be to go back to your mother's house and start over and hope that people will forget all that you've been through. And maybe someone from the Moabite tribe and those who worship the God Shamos, maybe they will have mercy on you and maybe you will be able to find livelihood in a future there. The reason that's important, I've heard a couple of sermons in my life where Orpah comes off as the bad person in the story which I think pushes it further than the narrative wants it to go. 
Orpah does, in some ways, what is the only logical thing to do in the text? To go find security where you came from. And so it's not so much a story about moral failures and a whole bunch of them. It's a story about one woman's unexpected faithfulness. The Hebrew word is hesed. When Naomi tries to send her daughters back, she prays that God will be hesed, that God will have faithfulness upon them. And, the, and here's the, the wild part of the story. Naomi becomes the embodiment back to Naomi of the hesed of God. And she proclaims these words that if you have your Bible still open, go back to in verses 16 and 17, these famous, powerful words, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Some of you know these powerful words across the years at times have shown up in various wedding liturgies that brides and grooms will say to each other, right? Wherever thou goest, I will go. Wherever thou lodgest, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Those are powerful words of covenant, right? Only problem is they're actually not said between a bride and a groom. So I was teasing a couple uh, I was planning to marry. I said, what text do you want me to preach from? And they said, oh, that text in Ruth. And I said, well, that's fine, except it's not really for a husband and wife. But we could do this. Why don't you turn groom to your new mother-in-law and make this commitment to her. And then bride, you turn to your new mother-in-law. They, they went with a different text. Um, but it's this powerful statement, right? Of covenant, of commitment, of, of going wherever she goes, of, of putting her life on the line for the sake of Naomi. What I would like us to here this morning, and what I think Ruth does is more than proclaiming an unexpected statement of great faith. That what Ruth seems to realize is that she has now been caught up in a story, for lack of a better term. She has been caught up now in a story, in a narrative, in a, in a life that she now sees is going on. She saw it in Elimelech. She sees it in Naomi. And she's not really sure where this is going. But she is willing to follow this through to the end, to be captured by it, to, to give her life over to it. So that Ruth's statement is not so much just a statement of faith and faithfulness, but a recognition of being caught in a particular vocation now that God has given to her the care and future of Naomi. To see that through where it goes. This is an important aspect of faith. That the great people of God in the narratives more often than not, are not people who chose to do great things. But there are people who submitted themselves and were captured by the unique vocation and calling of God. That bothers us, by the way. We modern people don't like to think about that. We like to think of this 
we've kind of made an idol out of choice, in my opinion. That's why Costco is our temple. And we think of choice being the most significant thing that we can have. And in fact, especially we as Americans, we want a lot of choice and we want to be able to make that out of complete freedom. But the only way to make choices out of complete freedom is to throw off all of our obligations that we have as we make those choices so we can make them freely. This is why I love to kind of pick on what we do with 18-year-olds when they come to college. That culturally, we have this kind of idea that when you're 18, here's what you get to do. You get to push the reset button. And all of those relationships that you've come with, all of that family shaping and background, all of the kind of faith claims that we've had on you for 18 years, you get to kind of set that aside. And now you get to kind of figure out who you want to be. And we love that at some level. But I have to say, if we have more time this morning, I talk about how I actually think that's really burdensome and you can see it in the panic in 19-year-old's eyes. Because first of all, there's too many colleges to choose from. And once you get there, there's just too many majors to, to figure out. And the problem is if you choose this one, you have to eliminate all those other ones. And as you quickly discover, as soon as you choose that one, there's a lot of good things to there, but there's actually work involved in it too. <laughs> really problematic. And you begin to realize there are some choices that we get to make in life, but identity actually comes not so much when we have tried to figure out who we are and chosen the right path for us, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. But identity oftentimes comes when we all of a sudden got captured by something that was bigger than us and it started pulling us into it. And eventually we said, okay, okay, we'll give ourselves to that. And we're captured in this vocation that invites us then to give our best to God and give our best to that calling. And we begin to discover, oh yes, this is where my life is found. I mean, not to be silly about it, but, but I was really happy when I married Debbie. I'm still happy, still happy, still happy. <laughs> but the more I think about it, neither of us got to like have a menu of all the appropriately aged people to marry in the world and got to go through all the menu that was because we got married before the internet. But anyway, like we weren't able to go through all the options. I'm glad we chose each other. But there are a few times over the last 30 years, I can see it in her eyes. She feels stuck. <laughs> right? Feels like this is a good decision, but, and here's the thing. I mean, we, we kind of chose to have, chose to have children. We really didn't get to pick them either. They just kind of came out and nurses handed them to us. And we've kind of been stuck with the ones we got. <laughs> and so much of our identity then has be, begun to be formed because we've learned how to love each other through that covenant or learned how to love our children. Again, I like that I kind of got to choose the, to come here six, seven years ago and you kind of got to choose me. But between you and me, about six weeks into this thing, I realized, oh my word, I'm stuck, right? <laughs> I realized what I got myself into. Probably took you less time than that. But that the great biblical characters of the scripture are people who got caught. I've been reading Will Williman's memoir called An Accidental Preacher. He talks a lot about vocation. And here's one of my favorite quotes about Paul. He says, you know, the apostle Paul wasn't searching for a more fulfilling life. 
He was just out hunting down wackos from the way. (laughs) But in the middle of that, God was searching for him. Paul has a story worth retelling because God rewrote it. Because God rewrote the story of Saul. And now a missionary to the Gentiles is all Paul will ever be. And then Christ called Ananias to tell Saul, church enemy number one, that he was going to knock him off balance and require him to suffer as never before for handing over the good news. And I love this is such a typical Willowman line. And if those life trajectories make life tough for Paul and Ananias, whoop de doo God doesn't care. <laughs> this is his great line. Our mistake has been to tell people that God wants to save them without calling them. That God wants to redeem them without deploying them. That God wants to bless them without giving them a vocation. As I mentioned earlier, this weekend is always important in the rhythm of the church year. Tomorrow is what we call All Saints Day. As strange as it is to have church, uh, Halloween is in some ways partnered together. It's a day, at least for the church's redemptive version of it, to recognize there's just a thin line between life and death. But November 1st, All Saints Day becomes a day where we recognize those who've transcended that boundary between life and death have become a great cloud of witnesses for us. And again, that the grand narrative of God is not primarily written in large moments of miraculous events. If we could go back to the beginning of the sermon, those 11 or 12 events that I listed, scholars debate this. They debate how many centuries and how many generations did those 11 or 12 events occur over? Maybe a generation got to live through two of them. And most of the generations of God's people never got to see any of them. And that God's grand narrative is not necessarily written in these powerful moments and events as much as they are written through the small moments of faith, Ruth. And so we asked some folks uh, to share just a few stories with us as we thought about All Saints Day. And so I think we have a video, a few people responded to that. We want you to see it this morning. My mom had 
two kidney surgeries nine months apart, and they didn't have insurance. They tried to start a business to help cover the debt, but that failed, and so more debt. Through all those really difficult years, it never impacted their faith. Tithing became an issue that was discussed, and it was decided that they would keep tithing, and that was a powerful lesson for me. When times were tough, they just drilled down, held tight to Jesus, and kept walking. In her late 50s, my mom had breast cancer, which she survived. After she passed, I was going through her things and I found a folder that contained a list of the Bible verses that she claimed for strength and comfort during that time, and the hymns that were precious to her and reminded her of God's promises. Her faith remained strong and steady through it all. We always had devotions and opportunities to, to ask questions and to discuss our faith, but more with mom than with dad. I came to recognize my dad's faith as I grew older. I mentioned this at his funeral. I went to work at Birdseye where my dad worked. He had worked there for years. It was a great place to work, but it was pretty rough. My dad was always the same person at work and at home. He walked his faith. He was steady. At the end of his life, when my dad decided not to treat his bad heart valve, I never saw a glimmer of fear or anxiety. He was so at peace in his faith in God. It reminds me of the verses in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. We are to put on God's armor so that we can stand. For all the time I knew them, my parents stood on the solid rock of Christ. I was asked to share some uh, stories about As I think about my mom, Ruby Pearsall, and the legacy that she has left me and my siblings, um, as my oldest sister, Jackie, who also attends here at Nampa College Church, as she and I talked about this, the word that we kind of settled on was this word, unwavering. My mom was unwavering in her faith in and love for God. 
came through, um, sometimes in words, all the time in actions. But mom was unwavering in her love for God and her faith in God. And that then cascaded into her love for us, our family. Um, and as children, uh, that sometimes cascaded into her disciplining us in appropriate ways because she loved us. So the legacy of faith that we've received from mom is the sense of unwavering love and faith in Christ. In terms of a story um, that might stand out and maybe as evidence of that legacy, um, it's a story that Jackie remembers really clearly, happened on more than one occasion. When mom, later in her life, still living at home alone, when Jackie would come to visit her to drop in, she'd walk in and find mom in the family room, um, there on the brown recliner with her hymnal and the Bible in her lap. And she'd be singing hymns, evidence again of where she was centered, where her focus was, and of her unwavering love for Christ. We're blessed, we're grateful, and we now seek to live in the same way. If you've not been baptized, we'd love to talk to you about doing that, but it comes with a warning Baptism is so amazing. It gives us the chance to put our old life to death. To give all of that brokenness and all of that torn apart messiness of our lives, to let that die with the death of Jesus, to, to put that to death. And then to come out of the water receiving a whole new life in Jesus. And, and I have to say, that is so amazing. It's so fun to get to celebrate that with people. But here's the warning. When you come out of the water, you not only get a new life, you get a new job. Well, maybe not one that you clock in in the morning and clock out in the afternoon. You might get one of those too, I don't know. But, but there's a call to follow Jesus a call to participate in a vocation. I think for all of us, that vocation is to seek first the kingdom of God. But if you've listened well this morning, I, I think Ruth invites us to recognize that that larger call includes smaller vocations that God gives us in the midst of learning how to follow him and learning how to seek that kingdom. For Ruth, that vocation was to be faithful to Naomi and to see where God was going to lead them in the story. My question for you this morning is, what is the vocation God has given to you? This is a time of upheaval and chaos, a time a little bit like the famine that Elimelech and Naomi found themselves in, a time where people are scattering in some ways, trying to figure out where to go and what to do. But the grand narrative God is writing right now will be written primarily through small stories of faithfulness and response. I know I got to close, but I need to say this to you. I love, um, I love Pastor Heather. She's an amazing children's pastor. 
But as great as she is, we will not fulfill the calling that God has placed upon our life to raise up our children in the way they should go and reach the children in our neighborhood for Christ simply because we have a great children's pastor. It will, be ha- it will happen because people in this room and in this community will feel the strong sense of vocation to love the children God has given to us. I am so excited for Josh to come and for youth ministry to thrive under his leadership, but he is cool. But can I tell you this? He is not gonna reach our young people in his own giftedness. The ability to walk through, walk with our adolescents through those important moments and decisions of life That will happen because people in this room and in this community feel a strong sense of vocation. That somehow if our young people don't know Christ and follow him with their lives, we will have failed as a church. I have a strong sense of vocation that God has given us an opportunity to reach this valley, but I am learning quickly, I cannot do that in my own strength. Even my own sense of passion about that is not enough for it to be accomplished. It will take people who have the strong sense of vocation that what God is wanting to do in this community goes far beyond just the walls of this building. We have so many people in this community who need to be loved and cared for in the very difficult moments of life. No matter how big a team we get, push them out there, we will not be able to care for them in the ways they should be cared for if there are not a group of people who have a strong sense of vocation that God has called them to be an instrument of God's hesed in their life. What is the vocation that God has given to you? It doesn't have to be parting the Red Sea. It does not have to be bringing down the walls of Jericho for God's grand narrative is written primarily in small stories of faithfulness to God. Pardon for sin, and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to God strength for today and bright hope for Ten thousand beside for great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. love to sing the first verse of that hymn. I'm serious about this question this morning. What is the vocation God has given to you? Maybe this morning is a good morning to respond 
to that sense of call that God has placed upon your life. And please hear me. It's not just we preacher types who get vocation. Everybody who comes out of that water of baptism gets vocation. The call to follow, the call to serve. And maybe this is a good morning just to respond to that. And so if you need a space to do that, I'd invite you to do that. Um, let's sing that first verse together. Great is thy faithfulness. grateful today uh, for your faithfulness to us. Though at times we may not always see that hand in powerful Red Sea, Jericho wall kind of moments. We are a people who can testify to your daily, hourly, moment by moment faithfulness to us. And you invite us to follow you, uh, to be captured by you. On this weekend where we celebrate the great cloud of witnesses, some of those saints get, get statues and have buildings named for them. But the vast majority of us who've been captured by your grand narrative Recognize that you are telling your story not in grand moments of faith, as much as in small stories of faithfulness. And so I pray that for us as a church, that first of all, we give you gratitude today for even those that we've heard about today, for Tony, for... Nikki's folks for, for Ruby and her life and love for you. Um, so many, even today as we celebrate Janella, so many who've gone before us. Help us to be for this time, this generation, this moment, the Ruth that you need for your story to bring, to come to its beautiful conclusion. And so help us. Um, I, I pray that we would not just simply be a church where people feel welcomed, although I hope that happens, or 
people feel like there is something exciting going on, although I hope that happens. But more than anything, may we be a people who recognize that we are called by you. And each of us in our own way, whether that's service or prayer, whether that's caring or teaching, whether that is evangelism or mission, May we find the vocation that you have called us and may the giftedness of this body work together for the glory of your kingdom. So bless us, we pray. You are faithful. Help us to be faithful in response. And God's people said, amen. Would you stand with me? Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. listen well this morning, you may think to yourself, um, well, I understand why God would have a vocation for them or for them, but I don't know what I got. You need to read the Bible better. God is really good at doing stuff with people who don't think they have a whole lot to give in vocation. In fact, his best work is done with those kind of people. So you are not off the hook. In fact, you are securely on that hook, baby, and I hope you can't get off of it. If you've listened well, this benediction's for us this morning. And now unto him, and not by our power, but by his power at work within us, is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory in us. Those people who are learning to be faithful, those people he calls his church, most of all in his son, Christ Jesus, our Lord, now in this generation and for all coming generations. God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.